0: I knew a guy in high school, a popular guy. And, uh, you know, in high school, unfortunately, in some crowds, popularity is everything. Popularity is God. He was tall. <clears throat> uh, he was good-looking. He was, he was athletic. He wrestled on the wrestling team and was quite good. He was in the cool crowd. And, uh, anyway, for a period of time... Um, we gave him the name, nickname, Show Dog. Show Dog. He did like dogs, uh, but that's not why we gave him the name Show Dog. It's because his new sophomore girlfriend—he was a senior—his new sophomore girlfriend seemed to treat him like a show dog. Now, uh, it's unwise to, you know, criticize the guy for what he was uh, worried about, but <laughs> that's a different thing. Um, he and we noticed certain things about the relationship, right? And we had concerns. For example, we knew that on one of their first dates, she made a point to take him shopping in order that she would introduce her new boyfriend to her ex-boyfriend. Another one, we knew that, that when they would turn up to parties, she seemed to love that her friends saw her with him while she often forgot to introduce him to them. These things made him feel like he was her show dog as if she wanted a relationship with him, not because she wanted to spend the rest of her life with him or because she wanted to explore that possibility, but because she loved the social status points that he came with or that came with him. Now, eventually he addressed the issue with her, You know, because obviously what he wanted, what he was interested in was a real relationship as opposed to being used as someone's tool to build the so-called good life, which, according to his analysis, didn't ultimately include him. Well, just as people often use and objectify other people in such ways, did you guys know that people use God? to do the same that's what we see in our passage today people trying to use god for their own gain but as our passage in first samuel chapter 4 teaches us god will not be used for man's glory god will not be used for man's glory i invite you to turn me to turn with me to the book of first samuel and we are in chapter 4 if you're using one of those black bibles in front of you can be found on page 228 Two hundred twenty-eight. That is First Samuel chapter four. If you're visiting with us, I'll recap the background of First and Second Samuel. It was written around, uh, let's just say, around a thousand BC. Basically, the late, the late portion of King David's reign over Israel. Um, basic information: uh, the author is unnamed. The book, though, is named after this guy named Samuel, really because he's our first main character. The main characters in 1st and 2nd Samuel are Samuel, and then King Saul, and then King David. And Samuel is the kingmaker. They call him the kingmaker. the nickname for him uh, is because he goes on to anoint the first king of Israel, that is, King Saul. And then he also anoints the second king of Israel, that is, King David. And the book details the changing of the guard, so to speak. And in 1st Samuel, Israel gets their first earthly king and they are established uh, in an earthly sense as a nation with a king over them. Samuel, the prophet, priest, he once again is the king maker. And as we're going to see, he goes on to anoint those kings. As 1 Samuel starts, it is a very spiritually dark time for the people of God. They had rejected their creator and then had also turned to other gods Uh, We see that in uh, if you're if you're if you're there, just go ahead and turn to first Samuel chapter seven. You look there in verse three, Samuel rebukes the house of Israel. He says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods, put away the foreign gods. Evidence very clearly from the beginning of the book that, that, that Israel had turned away from their God and said they had turned to idols. And you know who's leading them in their idolatry? Their very own leaders. Chapters 2 and 3 speak of the leader's heinous sins. The very leaders of God's people were not leading the sheep, but instead they turned on the sheep and were feeding on them. So they're not feeding them, but instead they are feeding on them. They're using God's people for their own benefit, as we saw last week. They are preying on them. They're stealing their resources for their own benefit. They're even using the bodies of women for their own immoral pleasure, when all the while they're supposed to be leading people to the presence of God. Look at chapter 2, verse 29, for a summary of the sin of the priests. God, through a prophet, rebukes the priests, particularly a priest named Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They say, God says there, Why do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings? And there, when it says, My sacrifices, my offerings, we should just think about the whole entire sacrificial system that God himself had set up. So that the holy God would meet with an unholy people in his grace and his mercy and his love. And uh, of course, the main point is not their attitudes towards the forms of worship, but their attitudes towards the God of these very forms, the God who commanded them to do these certain things in order that they would worship and in order that they would find fellowship. This here is the, God, the king of the universe who set up the whole Old Testament temple and the sacrifices and the offerings once again, because he was reaching out to a way where people, he himself was pursuing a way where people where they had sinned against him. Right. This is what the Bible teaches. God created man. Man rebelled against him. They had sinned against the only true God by setting themselves up to be God. They lived for their own glory. Uh, and, and so God being the only true king, he could carry out judgment immediately. But instead, he pursues them in love. In his grace, and his mercy, and his love, he, he himself sets up this way in which he, the holy God, can meet with his unholy people and yet they have scorned towards this God. They scorn the sacrifice and offerings and they scorn God himself. You know what it means to scorn God? It means to sneer at God. It means to uh, thumb their nose at God. It means to have disdain for God. More street language is to determine that God... And the, the forms of his worship are whack. And so really, you determine that God is whack. The leaders here, they scorned God. They rejected his word. They took advantage of God's people for their own benefit. But it doesn't stop there. We see from today's passage that even, they even go on to try and take advantage of God himself. But again, the main point here, chapter 4, is God will not be used for man's glory. God will not be used for man's glory. Two points, if you're taking notes. Here's the first point. Point number one, the objectification of God. Here we're just, just according to the, uh, the flow of the passage here. We see the objectification of God. Uh, in the previous chapters, we see the focus lands on these three priests that, that God comes to judge. You have Eli, sort of the chief priest, and then his two sons, Eli, Eli, uh, sorry, uh, Hophni and Phinehas. Again, in chapter two, we see their wicked sins. And then in chapter three, God moves to judge them. And the sentence that God brings against them and, and then the, descend, uh, the sentence that God brings against Eli and all of his descendants is death. Is that they then would die by the sword in battle. If you look there in 334, 334, God says that Hophni and Phinehas would die on the same day as a sign that God's word would come to pass. So he says there that the strength of Eli will be cut off. And then there would be no old man in his line in the days to come. Now, chapter four shows the fulfillment of this. So you have prophecy and then chapter four, you have fulfillment. OK, so, so you, there you have that in chapter three. And then you have the, the scene shifting a little bit. Let's just go ahead and read 321. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And, and Samuel is, is, is sort of like the foil to the evil priests. Verse one of chapter four and the word of and the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Now, here we have a scene shift. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped against Aphek. So here we're about 20 miles uh, west of Shiloh. And the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was Defeated. Before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Pause right there. You see, you have the the leaders of Israel coming together and they together as a unit, it seems, ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us? They, they, They think that something is wrong. And we would hope that they would search themselves right? figure out why is the Lord doing this to us, bringing this judgment upon us? Maybe they might draw near to God. Right. We know that the word of God is going forward. Maybe they're wanting to listen to it, but sadly they don't. In fact, Hophni and phineas they just continue doing what they do after using God's people for their own desires. Here, it seems they try and use God for their own glory. This here is the objectification of God. The elders together come together. And they say, once again, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And then Hophni and Phinehas, they seem to lead and say, well, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, let's be clear here. When I talk about the objectification of God in relation to them wanting to bring the Ark there, let's not get confused the Ark of the Covenant is not God. The Ark of the Covenant is not God. But in using the Ark the way they do, I mean, they are, in effect, using and objectifying God, right? They degrade God's person, the Lord of all, into an object to fulfill their desires. And their desires might appear to be good, but nevertheless, it is still their desires. They do not know the Lord, as chapter 2 says. <clears throat> Before we get on to using God to fulfill their goals. Okay, what is this Ark of the Covenant? You guys might be thinking of the ending scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, Indiana Jones and such. You know, keep in mind that is fiction. If you want true knowledge about the the Ark of the Covenant, we can go to the Bible here. The Ark of the Covenant was a sacred gold-covered portable chest. You can think about it that way. A portable chest, a relatively small, around four feet in length, and then a little over two feet. And a quarter feet uh, long, or sorry, uh, tall and wide. It's a chest. And uh, God had told the people to build it in the book of Exodus. And the most important reason why it was sacred was because of what God intended it to symbolize. What God himself determined to do on the Ark, he met with his people again. He met with his people at the Ark of the Covenant. And it was central to the people's worship here. So I think Old Testament Israel, obviously this doesn't apply to the church. We don't have any Ark of the Covenant here. Uh, And the Ark of the Covenant sat behind a veil. In a room called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies, in the temple of God. And by God's design, the Ark of the Covenant pointed to three things we're going to summarize it the ark of the covenant if you were to think about it summarize it points to three things three things that begin with the the letter r so think rulership god's rulership this is god's rulership over the created universe Uh, just look at what it's called in 4-4 you definitely want to open your bible and look and see and check it says so the people sent to shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the lord of hosts who is This is the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. It's almost like it flows like a title, right? Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. So think of all the hosts behind God, whether it be the created beings. Uh, We can think of angels. We can think of people. We can think of planets, right? Those are all the hosts of the Lord. So it's the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. That's rulership. Not only that, though, but he is enthroned on the cherubim. The cherubim were these heavenly spiritual beings. And uh, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant had two cherubim that kind of faced each other and their heads were bowed down and their wings were were up. And so if you look at it, you see this this visible uh, pointing towards heaven that symbolized honor and glory and power because these heavenly beings even were bowed before the throne of the Lord, so to speak. And so they describe it as the one who is enthroned on the cherubim. So that's rulership here. Not only did the Ark of the Covenant point to God's rulership or his kingship, it also pointed to God's revelation. So what was inside the Ark, if you remember? It, 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 there were copies of the Ten Commandments stored inside of the Ark and the book of the Covenant there, inside of the Ark. Not only that, though, but God had promised to continue to speak at the Ark of the Covenant. The third R, so you have God's rulership, number one, then you have God's revelation. The third one, the Ark of the Covenant pointed to God's reconciliation, God's work of reconciliation. So once a year, the high priest was to approach on behalf of all of Israel was to go into the Holy of Holies with the blood of a sacrifice. And then the lid was to be sprinkled with this blood. It symbolized the forgiveness that God had granted to his people all by his grace. That's reconciliation as the priest went before a holy God on behalf of all of the people and and. there, God chose to forgive his people's sins, and he also made a sacrifice for his own sin. So you have God's rulership, God's revelation, God's reconciliation. But it's strange, though. That's the thing that Hophni and Phineas and the people of Israel decide to bring into battle. Again, Hophni and phineas they don't even care about God's rulership. They're ruling for themselves, right? They don't care about God's revelation. They had set it aside And therefore, we see the judgment that the word of the Lord was very rare in those days because they didn't care. And they certainly didn't care about God's reconciliation. They're, They're sinning against Israel and against God, most importantly, in an ongoing fashion. So if you turn over to 212, look what it says about them. 212, they did not know the Lord. They were, it says there, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. What sense? They did not know the Lord. They didn't care about God. So why did they choose to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle against the Philistines? Well, I think in general, they knew their own history. I think they knew the people of Israel's history. Most likely, you imagine them trying to figure out, well, what should we do? And then they're looking, they're grasping back for something in the past. And so most likely, they are remembering that when God drew his people out of Egypt and towards the land that he had promised them, God had commanded them to to make sure that the Ark led their journeys. And and, and so if you have the Ark leading them in their journeys and they're they're gaining victories, naturally they think, well, hey, let's just go ahead and do what our ancestors did. Maybe they had thought about the crossing of the Jordan. These are biblical stories. You can read about them. Joshua 3 and 4, right? They got to cross the Jordan River and the Ark of the Covenant. They got to make sure that that crossed too. Uh, You think about... When they marched around Jericho, Joshua chapter six, right? It, it, with the Ark of the Covenant was there as well, and God gave them victory. So maybe Hophni and Phinehas thought, "Hey, you know, the Ark works for them. Let's go. Surely it's going to work for us." But to use the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord while rejecting the Lord of the Covenant is, in fact, objectification. It is using the Ark of God for their own glory as they scorned God and His people. And the forms of worship to them, without faith, the ark became like an amulet worn around the neck to ward off evil or like a talisman meant to bring good luck. And thinking about the introduction, you know, the relationship stuff, the people were interested in the rewards that come with being the people of an all powerful, all sovereign God. Right? think not social status points, but think national Powerpoints among the nations. That's what they were interested in. They were interested in receiving the rewards that come from being the people of an all powerful God. And so they used God to get them national significance. The ark and God himself was their chosen tool to get them the good life while rejecting faith in God instead, or while they rejected faith in God, they opted for faith in the forms, in objects, in the traditions of their ancestors. Did you know, friends, that people today do this? You know, we don't have to turn to 1 Samuel, 1000 BC, to see people using God for their own glory. Modern folks do this too. Maybe you guys do this too. And so in many ways, we are like the Israelites. Remember that God designed the entire sacrificial system, friends, to point to Jesus Christ. So just think about what the Ark had represented. So if you notice, like, Right. We're looking at the Old Testament where we're seeing how it applies today. So we're looking at the sacrificial system. We have to keep in mind that God designed the sacrificial system to point us to Jesus Christ. Think about God's rulership. Jesus rules. He's the Lord of all creation, as we saw last week, as Oscar preached, where Jesus speaks to inanimate things and they listen to him. That's God's rulership. Think about Jesus as as God's ultimate revelation. God, uh, Jesus Christ is the word of God. And think about too, Jesus Christ in his shed blood. It is through him that we have reconciliation. He is the final sacrifice. And after he makes atonement for his people's sins, he sits down, as it says in the book of Hebrews. So, people today, you know, we use Jesus. We use Christianity for all sorts of different reasons. Reason number one, just like Hophni and Phineas, you're taking notes. Reason number one, these are the reasons that I thought of. Just three of them. I'm sure we can think of a whole lot more. Hophne and Phineas, right, they are people who use Christianity to get what they want. They get what they want. I call this, uh, think about like dance moves. I think this is like a a religious move, right? I call this move the piggyback. If you're taking notes, this is the piggyback. Think of the non-believing dude. Think of the non-believing guy who wants to get the Christian girl. Non-believing guy who wants to, to, to get the Christian girl. This guy starts doing Christian things, starts attending Christian services, starts using Christian languages, starts claiming the Christian's Christ. Right? If you've ever done this, this is the piggyback. You're piggybacking on the very worship of God that he himself has commanded that his people do. And you're thinking like, hey, how convenient, right? God calls his people to get together. I think I'm going to piggyback on that to get in good with this girl. Right? That, that's using God's worship. It's using God himself. To further your own agenda. How convenient that God's agenda, at least here at this moment, is suitable to yours. That's the piggyback. Another reason why people get into Christianity or use Christ is because maybe they're tired of doing bad. Maybe they're tired of doing bad. I, I, have a, uh, I got a relative who, uh, I mean, to some degree, he, he uh, definitely has many acquaintances with the entertainment industry, rappers, this and that. He's a, um, he's a film editor. And we got into this conversation about about, uh, you know, entertainment folks who claim Christ. And he had seen this documentary and read this book about this one rapper who turned to Jesus Christ. And I think he was convinced that he actually did. And then I had mentioned somebody else who claimed to have turned to Christ. And this guy had, I think, had uh, mutual friends with this other person. And he and he made it seem like this guy had just done it claimed christ to make himself feel better because of many years of living a very worldly life it's almost like he wanted to uh claim christianity to see to to feel good about looking at himself in the mirror every single day i call this the clean my conscience (laughs) if the other one is the piggyback this one is the clean my conscience but the reality is you don't need one bit of desire to want to please god to claim that kind of christianity Maybe all your family members are Christian. Maybe your family members are pressuring you uh, to be a Christian, and so and so you so desperately want their approval, and so maybe that's why you claim Christianity, or maybe you just wanted to please your own conscience. Once again, to, uh, a way to escape your own guilt, your own lifestyle, try and make yourself more moral, like that other guy. To feel good about looking in the mirror every single day and so the forms of christianity become the means by which you feel good about yourself now by forms of worship forms of christianity i mean stuff like this i mean reading your bible i mean praying i mean turning up to church you know at uh, 11 or ten thirty in the morning on a sunday morning the next one reason number three people get into it to gain an identity i call this move the fit in the fit in Maybe you and your people are not historically Muslim. Maybe you are not historically Buddhist. Maybe you're not historically Hindu. And you're like, what am I? And then so to find some sort of identity, you then start claiming Christianity. I met a lot of people who were like this when we worked in the Middle East. You know, you, a lot of people move to a country like, uh, like the United Arab Emirates, which is where we were. They know that they are in a Muslim country. And so they start asking themselves, like, gosh, what do I believe? And so a lot of people would associate themselves with Christianity, but not really care about the Christ of Christianity. Whatever persons, whatever a person's reasons might be, Christ in those situations has been objectified. Christ in Christianity becomes the means to the end of living the good life, however you define it. And God has been stripped of his Godness. God has been stripped of his godness. And friends, this is absolutely unacceptable. We're going to turn to look at that a little bit later. But if you are here, and this kind of summarizes you, the great thing is that you can, in fact, find God by looking beyond the forms, but to the God of the forms, the God who has commanded the forms. Thinking about the forms of worship, right? Right, how can you look to God as you go through the forms, which is attending church, opening the Bible, singing the songs, whatever? You think about the preaching of the word, right? What we're doing right now, as you're hearing the preached word. Uh, you know, this isn't something to do just to do, it's something that God commands his people to do, so that we might grow in knowledge of God, so that we might know him. And ideally, we would be as giddy as little children receiving little love notes or little Valentine's Days. We would hold them close to our heart and pour and pour ourselves over every single word. Like, what does she mean when she says this? When she says, have a cool summer, does she mean (laughs) that she's going to think about me over summertime? What exactly does that mean? Friends, that's how we're supposed to be pouring over the words of God. God himself has spoken to us. It's not something that we just simply listen to to get through so that we can leave and feel good about ourselves on your average sunday after partying let's say on a saturday night maybe tonight you're thinking about joining us for the lord's supper right and you're going to watch us take the lord's supper right some people think that taking the lord's supper actually adds to our salvation like we are bank accounts of righteousness and every time we do a good work like the lord's supper baptism we add to our righteousness we're filling ourselves up as if we are a bank account of righteousness but you know the bible doesn't say that this stuff saves But the Lord's Supper is a symbol that Christ had commanded us to do that involves our senses, not so that we might add to our salvation through our work, but to remember his work, right? To glory in the work of Jesus, the work alone that saves us. And so, friends, it's not about the form, but about Christ and the work that it symbolizes, the broken body, the torn body of Jesus, the spilled blood of the Lord, right? That is a form. But we're supposed to see what it points to according to the word of God. So friends, when you come to church, don't just come wanting to get through a church service. Friends, I hope you come wanting to find fellowship, wanting to find the church's savior himself. Don't just come wanting to get through the church service. I hope you come wanting to find and fellowship with the church's savior. Thinking about those who want to use God to get what they want, you know, when you look to the God who has commanded these forms, friends, it's in him that you find your answer, not to what you want. Right? think back. Right. That's why some people use God, the piggyback. It's not it's, it doesn't give you what you want, but friends, it helps you know what you need. You do need to be carried. You know, I, when I think about piggyback piggyback, I think about when I used to live in the south and there are people who actually race pigs uh, and they try and ride pigs Um so thinking about the piggyback, you could use God like an animal to get you where you want to go. But friends, you see that even there, it's, it's, it's a hint of truth. But friends, it shows you what you need. You go from doing the piggyback to wearing the life vest of the gospel. It shows you what you need. That is salvation. You two have sinned against God and you have earned God's just judgment. The Bible says even in Hell. But praise God that where you had sinned against God, God continues to reach out to you in love and grace and mercy, pursuing you, parting the heavens to pursue you, to show you his grace and love. And so you go from doing the piggyback to wearing the life vest of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He sent his son. God, the father sent his son to live the perfect life that you could not live. So he undoes what Adam and Eve did, right? They sinned. They plunged us all. We choose, too, to follow in their sinful footsteps. But Jesus Christ offers forgiveness. He lives the life we could not live. He dies the death we should have. He bears our sin and the wrath that we deserve. Right? He takes it upon himself. That's what the whole sacrificial system pointed to, right? It pointed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we need to be saved by a sacrifice, the shedding of blood. It's not found in any animal, bulls or goats, as the book of Hebrews says, but found in Jesus Christ alone. And then on the third day, he got up from the dead, showing all that... Payment was paid in full. And so all who repent and believe are saved from their sin. And so those who repent and believe that you're either wearing the life vest of the gospel. We boast in the life vest of the gospel because we are going down. Thinking about those who want to feel good about themselves, right? They want to feel righteous. They are doing the cleanse my conscience, right? When you look to God, you see that the standard you need to meet is not your own. It's not your family's, not anybody else's but it's God's standard. And you don't find righteousness by just simply going about the forms of Christianity, but by looking to the Christ of Christianity, who is our righteousness. Right? We need Him to be righteous because God credits His righteousness to us. So He sees us as sinner, but yet still just if we believe on Him. That's how we have right standing. That's justification, a declaration of God's righteousness where He also imputes to us Jesus Christ righteousness. In other words, He takes it and He gives it to us. So we go from doing the cleanse your conscience to being cleansed in Christ, cleansed in Christ, where we depend on Him for the glory of Jesus Christ. And then think about those who use Jesus Christ and Christianity for belonging and identity. Right? They go from doing the fit in. Right? That's what they're doing. Right? They seek their identity in Jesus Christ or Christianity, but really they're using it for their own belonging. But friends, you can't find identity in a label of Christian. You know how many people have donned crosses, even given themselves tattoos of Bible verses and the cross on their backs. Even I knew one friend that had a cross that started from his neck all the way down to his uh, all the way down to his hips. And the crossbar went all from shoulder to shoulder. Uh, right. But but that was just belonging because he didn't really want to follow Jesus. All you had to do was just look at his life and he didn't truly follow Jesus. But if you look to this Jesus, you actually do find identity, not for our own glory, but for the glory of Jesus Christ. We begin to experience the blessings of adoption that point to the grace of the father who adopts us and our Jesus Christ, who brings us into the family. And so, you know, you see all these things for why people use Christianity. There's a hint, just a little hint of what is good and right. But, you know, the forms of Christianity, they don't get you all the way there. You turn to the one, the Christ of Christianity, and then you find the true thing, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's a Christianity full of Christ. It's centered on Christ. It's Christianity where Christ gets all the glory. If we're going to use Christ, that just leaves that person with a Christless Christianity, according to uh, one pastor and author's title of his book, a Christless Christianity. And you see this illustrated in the Old Testament version in Hophni and Phineas. Right, they had the Ark of God, which proved that a holy God, according to His grace and mercy, reached out to sinful people. God Himself, the Lord of all creation, splits the heavens, right, and says, "Look, okay, I want you to gather together and to know My forgiveness. I give you the Ark of the Covenant." so that you might know that you need shed blood and even the cherubim's wings would point to point you to me and how it would be covered in gold representing my purity. Right. They're supposed to behold a great God. That they they that, that this great God had a, desires to be in a relationship with sinners. And the only thing the great solution is, let's take the ark and parade it around. That'll give us some victory. Friends, you see that God in his mercy and grace is he's splitting the heavens, so he does with Jesus, most clearly in Jesus. But to have a Christianity full of Christ, we must acknowledge and embrace and worship Christ who took on flesh and died as our substitute. I mean, Jesus himself taught the same. You can't get away with doing the forms of Christianity while claiming Christ without heart. This is what Jesus taught, taught the Jewish re- leaders who were so used to going about religious forms, even zealously going about religious forms. Every single time that the, the people gathered, they were there. He said in Matthew chapter 7, t- 21 and 23, He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You can say everything you want to, but you do not know the Lord. And then he goes on to say, Okay, says, Lord, Lord. Uh, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. So so you get that there there is a way of doing that isn't really doing. He goes on, verse 22 of Matthew, chapter seven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They are doing in the name of Jesus. But really, it is works of lawlessness that earn for them condemnation. Friends, God is not a show God. He is the Lord. And if you find yourself using God to fulfill your own glory, friends, the great news is that God calls you to repent of your sins and believe. It's why he's sending Samuel to preach them, preach to them that they should turn back to the Lord That's why he sends Jesus of all. He, the Son of God himself, to call sinners to come back to the Lord and know the forgiveness of God. Give up your own glory and ascribe Jesus Christ the glory that he deserves. For Hophni and Phinehas, they had the forms of God's people. They even had the furniture of God's people, right? The ark. But they did not have the God of them. They did not know God. Look over at chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. <clears throat> it says there, actually, let's go ahead and read verse 4 again 4-4. Four, four. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God is coming to the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men. And fight. Do you hear the irony of the rebuke that comes from the Philistines? I mean, even though the Philistines get the story wrong about what happened in Egypt, right? It says the gods, plural, came into the camp. They don't seem to have more, I mean, sorry, don't they seem to have more reverence for the God of the Ark of the Covenant than Israel does? They knew how God proved his rulership and kingship in the Exodus when he drew his people out of Egypt. How God gave them all the plagues and how God destroyed Pharaoh and then the Egyptian chariots and the soldiers in the Red Sea. At least there is some sort of reverence for this God that they don't really know, right? They're a pluralistic people, they worship many gods, polytheism, but yet they fear him. But yet you see there in verse four, the end of verse four, Hophni and Phinehas, they're there hanging out with the Ark of the Covenant. They don't really care. But at the end of the day, the Philistines were just as lost as Hophni and Phinehas were. Hophni and Phinehas, they judge it wise to use God to fulfill their own means and ends or sorry, their own ends and goals. The Philistines, knowing God's power, still choose to go up against him. Look at verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home and their was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the Ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, died. You know, to readers ears who know the Old Testament. The result, I think, is still a bit surprising. The Ark of the Covenant, we think, is going before the people, yet they lose. What a clear lesson. That God is not in the forms alone, and he's certainly not in the furniture. On a side note, present application, that's why I don't really care much for crosses. You know, we got one there, we got one there. I don't really care. But, you know, you come into our house, we don't have a cross. The cross doesn't, this cross doesn't do anything just because I possess it or because it hangs on a wall. God is not in, a, in the furniture. To treat it, to treat the furniture as if God is in the furniture just because we think it is, is actually to act more like Hophni and Phineas. I got the spirit of Jesus Christ in me. That's how I know that God is here where two or three are gathered in terms of that's talking about uh, certain circumstances, but certainly that is true when the church gathers. God is here. We don't need any building. We can go gather on the lawn over there. God is there. God is not on the furniture just because they think it to be the case. But, you know, it's still a little surprising. They lose even though they have the Ark of the Covenant. Verses 10 and 11 are a stinging indictment on the priest's Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, and really all of the people. The ark of God is captured and the two sons, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, are killed. This brings us to point number two. Point number two. Point number two is definitely shorter than point number one. Remember God... uh, Sorry, point number two. Objectifying God earns the judgment of God. Objectifying God earns the judgment of God. Remember, God had determined to judge the house of Eli so in 231, it says there, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there would not be anyone from the line, his line, that would reach old age. And here God fulfills that against Hophni and Phinehas and then ultimately Eli. Right? You see Hophni and Phineas, according to verse 34 of chapter 2, or sorry, chapter, well, let me double check here. Yeah, chapter two, you see there that a sign is that Hophni and Phineas would die on the same day. And so God fulfills his word. God also fulfills his word against Eli. Eli's strength gets cut off as well. Look at 12 to 18 of chapter four. Let's go ahead and read that. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line, which is 20 miles west of Shiloh. And came to Shiloh the same day. So this dude runs 20 miles Right. And and his clothes are torn and dirt is on his head, which is a symbol of sorrow, repentance. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? The man hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was ninety eight years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. It's interesting, right? He's blind, but then he's spoken of as if he's eagerly watching. Verse 16, And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. He judged Israel 40 years. Eli is still culpable in his son's sin because of his own lack of leadership. And he here, he's may once again, maybe seen as having his heart set on the right things, you know, He does care about what happens to Israel. His death almost seems like it corresponds with a lament, right? An outcry, a great sorrow of repentance that this guy has brought in terms of the news, right? And so when does his death take place? It comes when he hears the author. God doesn't say when he heard that his sons died, he fell over and died. It's when he heard about the Ark of the Covenant. Then he dies Nevertheless, God had moved to judge Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. And Eli, while being the chief priest, was to lead the people in honoring God. Instead, he honored his sons above God, as it says in 2.29. And then turn to 3.13. Turn to 3.13. We see here more of the character of Eli. Right? God says, and I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever. He's speaking about Eli for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. The sins of Eli, he's an enabler. Instead of rebuking his sons, he enables his sons. And as some of us were, this past week, we're having service review. So uh, me, Oscar, and whoever can join us, right, we get together at Starbucks to review every aspect of the service, including the sermon, because I find it useful to get feedback. Anyways, AJ, AJ was there, and AJ keenly noted that though Eli fully intended to do his sons good, his enabling only led them into greater sin, which led to the very judgment of God. Just think about that, you who struggle with the fear of man and who enable. For Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, death was the judgment for objectifying God. And clearly for Hophni and Phinehas, who did not know God, it was judgment, eternal judgment in hell. Friends, did you know that the same stuff that was in Hophni and Phinehas' hearts is the same stuff that's in our hearts? Same stuff that makes sin seem so attractive and it be good to use God, to ride on, to get us to where we want to go. What is this stuff, right? What is their sin? By objectifying God, Hophni and Phineas launched a mission to de-God God. By objectifying God, Hophni and Phineas launched a mission to de-God God. And I love that phrase. I use it often. You've probably heard me use it. This phrase, is, at least far as I know, is by a New Testament professor, D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson, and he describes Adam and Eve's sin as the de-godding of God, that is to take all that is God's and his glory and to use it for their own end. And in effect, Adam and Eve and we too make ourselves out to be God this happens if we worship physical idols. Let's say you take the glory of God and you literally give it to other things, these inanimate objects, which Israel was doing. It also happens when we use God and his things to get what we want. So if you are visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, friend, this passage teaches us that God will not be used for your own personal ends. I know that this sounds really countercultural, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound very countercultural, even counterculture to what is found in pop culture Christianity, or you know, pop culture Christianity? Christ sees Jesus as our own personal sherpa, the little dark man who leads us to the heights and peaks of our own journeys, and even carries our bags while we go on our little climb. But to conceive of Christianity like that. Is to do Christianity while robbing Christ of all of His glory. The reality, though, is that such Christianity is once again a Christless Christianity. Thinking about God's Old Testament people, if they think they possess the power and presence of God because they possess and parade His furniture, right? Who do they have to learn from? They can look right at Hophni and Phineas. The Lord is not in the building just because they decide so. The same is true for today. Christ will not be used for your own glory he is the lord the great i am turn over to the book of colossians turn over the new testament book of colossians and we look here right this should rebuke us right if we're tempted to uh use jesus christ for our own benefit write him like the pig that we think he is or think or call him to be if you're sitting next to somebody who doesn't know the Bible well, just help them get there. You know, we're, we were all beginners at some point in time. Colossians 1, 15, 16. I want you to be reminded of who this Jesus is, friend, that you might even be using for your own glory. Colossians chapter 1. You look there at 15 and 16. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1, 15 and 16, it says he that speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation, that doesn't mean he was a created being, it just means that he was the one like the the eldest to receive everything, the one given authority, the one given all responsibility and that culture is the one who inherited the greatest amount. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now get this, friends, if you are using him, look at who God says he is for by him. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. Now get this, and for him, God does not exist for you. You actually exist for God to ascribe Jesus the glory that he deserves. Friends, that should rebuke us all. Christian included, even us, even we are tempted to use God when we aren't seeing so clearly. But when we see who Christ is, we know. That he cannot, and in fact, he will not allow himself to be used for his own glory as the Lord of all creation. Now, for some reason, we get this right. We see that if there is like a three year old who is manipulating a 50 year old parent or a 45 year old parent. Right. We typically think like. Oh, man, come on. Right. You've got to do something, parent. You can't let the child walk over the parent. Why is that? Because a parent inherent to who he or she is possesses a good authority that should be used. And so we want the parent to exercise, authority, right? We get that. We don't think, oh, yeah, that's good to year old. You just continue doing what you're doing. We don't think about that when when it comes to governmental forms, when the government is good. Right, We get right that the government should go on and exercise authority if there are people who are going against a good authority. We, we, we say, yay, we, we cheer. That's why we see sinful rebellion and we think, man, that is unjust. And so for God to be who he is, we want him. We need Jesus to be who he is. And in him being who he is, then God is great. God is beautiful. All things were created through him and for him. That includes us. God will not be used for our own glory. I think this is the the main point of these concluding verses in 19 to 22 as well. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, sorry, turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter, sorry, it's 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 19 to 22. Death actually continues. This time it's uh, Phineas's wife. This isn't, it doesn't appear to be any judgment from God. This is just she just dies. Uh, it says there now. The, now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, "Do not be afraid, for you have born a son." But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Ichabod, Kabod, basically has that uh, the root word is weight or glory. Ichabod, the glory is gone. The glory is gone into exile. And so here she names her child, right? We understand this. some of us, we, our cultures might name children that's tied to a particular meaning. Even sometimes we, we, we think, uh, you know, a name, we go on to pray the name so that we pray that God would make the name true. That's what's going on here, right? She names him Ichabod. The glory of God has departed. Of course, we are not to think that Israel experienced a great loss of God's glory because the ark of God had been taken. Remember, this is a verse in light of the history of redemption and everything that was leading up to it. Certainly, we are to mourn the loss of the glory of God at this particular moment, but every moment that led up to it, even before this, we are to mourn Israel's loss as we read about the waywardness of God's people's hearts, even in chapter one of first Samuel and then the period of the judges, as we read the period of the judges, they were supposed to mourn uh, the people's loss of the glory of God as everyone was doing right in their own eyes. And so here in this death and then this birth and then this naming of Ichabod, it's kind of like the final stamp that's a commentary on all of that time period. God's glory was long gone before 1 Samuel chapter 4. As one has written, the glory of God has indeed departed. But not because the ark of God had been captured. The ark had been captured because the glory had already departed. This here is a story, once again, about how God's glory will not be used for man's glory. God will not be used for man's own glory. But friends, you read this and, you know, if you're a Christian even... If you're a non-Christian, both of us, you know, we read this and maybe we are left without hope. There's a wonderful thing, though, is in light of everything that's going on, the ark is still God's ark. The people of God are still God's people and God is still a gracious God. God in the ark, which points to Jesus once again, has split the heavens and sent his son to die on the cross. God is still faithful God is still merciful. He is still loving to save and he does so in Jesus Christ. And so in even in the verses that we read in in Colossians, right? In him, there is forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation. And if we hear if we're thinking all about the furniture of God, right? We might be hopeless. The ark of God is captured. But if we are about hearing from the sovereign Lord, if we are about being reconciled with that sovereign Lord, then you look at chapter three, verse 21 and 4 one. And you have hope. The ark of God can be gone, but the word of the Lord is coming again. 321 and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel course this this begs that us to, to turn the chapters and to continue reading on and you'll see that god does not need people to parade his furniture in front of other nations to do his great glo- to do his great work and to display his great glory he will even do it himself as we turn next week to see this very truth or two weeks from now so we here have hope as we conclude this sermon we here have hope There are times when God, when we seek to use God for our own glory, but as this chapter says, God will not be used for man's own glory. Here at the end of the chapter, Israel's main leaders are dead. Israel was defeated. The Ark of the Covenant was captured. But with God, even in the midst of sin, there is always hope. Friends, again, if you're visiting with us today, and maybe you are using God, maybe you have used God This here is an invitation to repent of your sin and turn and believe Jesus Christ came the first time not to judge, but to save. Right. That is God and his grace calling people to turn and come back to the God that they we too, have rejected. There will come a time when judgment will come. And we know that 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 happens in the second coming. But until then, every single day, every single moment. Here we are reminded of the fact that God's grace is ever present with his people if we turn from our sin and believe. And in doing so, we will know free and full forgiveness that comes to the cross alone. And so we can rejoice in the grace and mercy of God in Christ. Let's pray together. Our father in heaven, Lord, we do indeed thank you that you are a kind God. And even though we are sinners, yet you came, you sent your son to die on the cross for us. We thank you, Lord, as it says in your word, that though we were still sinners, though we were hostile towards you, the righteous died for the unrighteous. Lord, we thank you that we can live now before you without fear but live before you as a child does before the Father. Lord, we thank you that you are such a kind-hearted Father. Even where we sin, Lord, you, you even use those things to bring yourself glory, as we're going to see in the next handful of chapters in Samuel. Lord, we see this in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would soften our hearts. And where we are tempted to use you for our own glory, Father, we pray that you would take those verses that we read in Colossians, that you would impress them upon our heart, that that all things were made through you and all things were made for you. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us turn from our own sin and that we would embrace and magnify the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, to you belongs all glory and honor and praise forever and ever. In your name we pray. Amen.